0: Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Dr. C.C. Pecknold, Associate Professor of Theology at Catholic University of America, giving a talk entitled, Augustine on the Powers. Dr. Pecknold's talk was part of the Theology Series at Franciscan University of Steubenville. I'm talking tonight about Augustine on the powers. I suppose in a way uh, Jacob mentioned that I'm a convert and in many ways I'm a convert because of Augustine and in many ways I'm a convert because I came to think that Augustine was a Catholic and not everybody who reads Augustine thinks Augustine's a Catholic. <laughs> Many Protestant theologians today associate the Pauline phrase, principalities and powers. Have you ever heard that phrase, principalities and powers? They associate it with a critique of politics. Politics is no good. Politics isn't noble or good, it's part of the fall. Augustinians, Protestants, and Catholics alike often work upon the assumption that Augustine saw politics as a consequence of the fall, this assumption is largely the result of abstracting things that Augustine says in an anti-Pelagian modality. You remember Augustine engages with these Pelagians who think that we can do everything out of the goodness of our nature without first checking it with his broader anti manichaean commitments to the goodness of nature. Augustine was also early on attracted to a Manichaean sect which he left behind because the Manichaeans thought that our human nature Uh, the flesh was evil, and Augustine finally rejected that and affirmed the goodness of human nature, though of course the original sin affecting the will. So I'm gathering evidence in a sense as a convert, I guess, gathering evidence that pushes against this Protestant tendency to read Augustine this way, and today's talk is part of my larger Catholic Augustine project um, of putting together the pieces that make the case that Augustine does not think politics is a consequence of the fall per se, but rather that we are social and political by nature, and the consequences of the fall reside not in our social and political natures, but in the interior acts of the will, which can produce scalar social and political realities, better or worse, if you see what I mean on a scale. That's what I mean by scalar. Better or worse according to the common good which our wills are ordered to. The piece of evidence I'm going to bring to you all tonight is a small piece, insignificant piece in a sense, or maybe it's not so insignificant. I'm going to talk about angelic natures tonight. A lot of people don't talk about angelic natures, a lot of Augustinians don't talk about Augustine's treatment of angels, but it has everything to do with this phrase, principalities and powers. Principalities and powers for Augustine is associated not with politics but with angelic natures, just as it is for the apostle Paul. The treatment of angelic natures is extensive in the City of God, and so it's a bit curious that people don't pay much attention to it. I'm not sure why we are so disinterested in Augustine's extensive treatment of the angels, but we're not. The medievals, by contrast, were exceedingly interested in this aspect of his thought, maybe even characteristically interested in this aspect of thought, maybe even stereotypically interested in how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. My hunch is that we moderns have divested ourselves of all patristic and medieval speculation about angels, not to mention demons, too much Boltman perhaps. We're quite proud of the fact we sophisticated moderns want nothing to do with angels. But the result of this disenchanted Augustine is a reduced understanding of him. Instead of understanding the human person in analogical relation, to angelic natures, what do we like to do? Understand ourselves in analogical relation to our animal, evolutionary natures or something like that, biological natures. We're forced analogically downwards in modern theology. Augustine wants to raise us, our reflection on human nature analogically upward. I think that's important. Because we have excluded this speculation about angelic agency, how angels act, both how holy angels act, how fallen angels act, we either reduce powers and principalities to mere human political agency, which must be resisted, of course, or we replace angelic natures with political natures. We we give politics either an angelic power or a demonic power, a mysterious spiritual force in human affairs. How will you vote? This is a profoundly modern problem, it seems to me. Either our political nature is diabolically depraved, or it is omnicompetent, seraphically capable of helping all mankind with ease. This strikes me as a tendency born of the dialectics of the Reformation and the Renaissance more than of fifth century Rome. So my task in this paper tonight, all caveats aside, is simple. My aim is to examine in more detail and this is just an attempt, my first try, to imagine in more detail the framework that Augustine brings to this phrase, principalities and powers, first in light of his philosophical engagement with natural theologies that took up the question of the mediation of the daimons, these spiritual figures in platonic thought that sort of rested halfway between humans and the gods. And then showing how the climax of Augustine's argument about how mediation works leads him to want to talk about Christ as the perfect mediator, the one true mediator. By pushing the mediation argument then into books 11 through 12 of The City of God, we can see that for Augustine the angelic natures participate either in a diabolical mediation, which does not really mediate at all, or in the mediation of the second person of the Trinity. The holy angels are seen as good mediators too of the word. Whether this has anything to do with earthly affairs is something we can decide in course. My own conclusion will be that it is not merely a speculative detour for Augustine to reflect on angelic natures in books 11 through 12, but constitutes an important, if neglected, aspect of the story he wants to tell concerning a cosmic struggle between two cities that has earthly consequence. Okay, the first section of my paper is of daimons and eudaimons, Augustine's philosophical sources. The daimons, you might say demons, but the daimons are frequently mentioned in the works of Plato, especially in the symposium, where they are mediators between the gods and humans. Like humans, there are good and bad daimons. Indeed, the famous Greek term for happiness, eudaimonia, literally means good daimon. A daimon who can mediate you, attach you, to the happy end. Augustine knows his Plato, of course, and primarily through Porphyry and Apuleius, which he talks about both of them in books 11 and 12. He also knows how the Platonic tradition develops in a religious and cultic direction through Plotinus. Augustine's own parishioners in Hippo would have been aware of their neighbors making sacrifices to Daimons for the salvation of souls Augustine himself complains that some very confused parents, very confused Christian parents, continued the practice of sacrificing to the daimons on behalf of their baptized children. You see, it's not only the 20th, 21st century that where Catholics get confused. The fifth century has its own corner on the confused lay Catholic not sure of how to live an unaccommodated life. In light of this, We can understand that Augustine's extensive treatment of the daimons in City of God, books eight through 10, was not simply crucial for his argument with civic polytheist revivalists, but also crucial for teaching his own parishioners. In books one through five of the City of God, Augustine had argued that the Roman gods, the virtues, the powers, the daimons do the Roman people no temporal good, but have actually brought them material harm. In books six through 10, he attempts to show how their desire to return to the gods is even more irrational than when one asks about what sort of eternal or spiritual uh, benefits these gods bring. And here's where Augustine's most extensive knowledge of the daimons occurs, as they provide him with the theme of mediation with which he will build to his famous climactic conclusion that Christ alone is the one true mediator between God and humanity, the one who can really make us happy in the way that the daimons really can't. In Book 6, Augustine mounts a concentrated philosophical argument against Varro's threefold classification of theology as political, poetic, and philosophical, or in his terms, civil, mythical, and natural. There, he argues that Varal rightly prefers the natural theology which inclines to world-soul monotheism over the confused, irrational, and self-refuting polytheistic rites which permeate civil and mythical theologies of the city and the theater. But he faults Varal for not seeing how the philosophical search for metaphysical causation in the world should help him to see the falsehood of roman polytheism which he describes as quote a bottomless pit of delirium this is how you should describe your enemies (laughs) a bottomless pit of delirium which degrades the people and turns obscene degradation into luxury and amenity says in city 6 6 Even when not saying so, Augustine is obviously thinking of daimons as diabolical. While the natural theologies of pagan scholars are also mixed with much error, even diabolical error, and thus not natural enough, Augustine's keen to bracket the question of natural theology in order to demonstrate for his readers, many of them Roman, The way in which the mythical theologies of the theater are really vehicles for civic polytheism anyways, which has such a corrosive influence on the Roman soul. Yet the theology of the philosophers comes in for criticism as well. Varro and other naturalists find many elements of the world worthy of their respect, contemplation, and worship. They identify these elements as parts of the world soul, an emanation of the god of nature. Augustine does not immediately proclaim such natural theologians as blasphemers, though you can always sense that he's just ready to at any moment. Rather, he thinks they have simply made a category mistake, which he doesn't seem to think they could know without divine revelation. In fact, what he says is that all of these natural principles that the philosophers come to know can be predicated, can be said of the one true God. That is to say, These pagan natural theologians are trying to hit a target, and that target is a true target. They're actually coming to a knowledge of God, even if it's an altogether hazy or vague knowledge. If only these natural theologians could refer to the properly transcendent cause of nature, if only, Augustine says, they could understand these attributes of the world to the true God who made the world, they could refer them to the true God who made the world, who is the creator of every soul and every material substance." Then they could properly direct their worship. This is their fundamental problem. They don't know how to properly direct their worship. Augustine had initiated an argument about the worship of the gods in Book 6, But by the end of Book 7, he states clearly what constitutes the proper worship of God, and it's bound up with his argument about mediation. But now the mediation of, wait for it, angels comes into the picture to set up what he'll say later, and also to recognize, quote, as he puts it, the certain independence of human creatures in relation to the final end of blessedness or happiness. He writes, and this is a long quote, so bear with me. He writes The God of our worship is He who has created all beings and ordered the beginning and end of their existence and their motion. He has in His hands the causes of all that exists. And all those causes are within his knowledge and at his disposition. It is the one true God who is active and operative in all those natural things, but always acting as God, that is, present everywhere in his totality, free from all spatial confinement, completely untrammeled, absolutely indivisible, utterly unchangeable, and filling heaven and earth with his power, which is independent of anything of the natural order. He directs the whole of his creation while allowing to his creatures the freedom to initiate. He directs the whole of creation while allowing to his creatures the freedom to initiate and accomplish activities which are their own. For although their being completely depends on God, they have a certain independence. He often acts, Augustine writes, through the medium of angels, but he himself is the source of the angel's blessedness. And so, although he sends angels to men for various purposes, it is from him and not from the angels that blessings come to men as they come also to the angels. It is from this one true God that we hope eternal life, end quote, City of God, 7, chapter 30. The structure of mediation here is such that now Augustine is inviting the reader to think about the angelic mediation as something which is encompassed within the one true mediator, whom he he acknowledges even before he reaches the famous climax of book 10, in which Christ is the true mediator. For he continues that it is this one true God who has quote, sent to us his word, who is his only son, who was born and who suffered in the flesh, which he assumed, sorry, which he assumed for our sake, so that he might know the value God placed on mankind and might be purified from all our sins by that unique sacrifice. And when all difficulties have been surmounted, we may come to eternal rest and to the ineffable sweetness of the contemplation of God, City of God 731. It's against this backdrop of a kind of what I call real transcendence, a transcendence that even the Platonists couldn't come up with, a real transcendence, a bright contrast between creator and creation. It's against this bright contrast of the creator-creation distinction and a proper economy of mediation between them that Augustine then says that while philosophy is capable of going a great distance on unmasking, the weakness of civic polytheistic theologies. Only the one true religion has, quote, the power to prove that the gods of the nations are unclean demons, has the power to set human beings free from their temptations. The unmasking and the overcoming of powers, then. This is, in contemporary theology, the unmasking of powers is something that we do in our very savvy, critical way of critiquing the state or what have you, but for Augustine, what does that but revelation? The power to prove the gods of the nations are unclean demons. The unmasking and overcoming of the powers for Augustine is not the overcoming of imperial politics. He's not against Rome. He's not on some level against empire, though he does prefer kingdoms to empires. Indeed, Augustine praises Constantine and Theodosius alike. Rather, it's the unmasking and overpowering overcoming of not only polytheism, but the demonic, diabolical influence deceiving human mind and soul in the city. Varro's failures at natural theology, namely his inability to distinguish God from the world, to see beyond the visible world, does not settle the question of the philosopher's worship. In books eight and nine, Augustine finally ascends to the Platonic tradition he most admires. Platonism must take pride of place over fabulous theology with its titillation of impious minds by rehearsing the scandals of the gods in the theater. Over and over civil theology, where unclean demons posing as gods have seduced the crowds, as he puts it. The Platonists are not only superior to the civil and mythical theologians, but also to the natural theology of Varro, who did not understand that the true God is author of the universe, the source of the world rather than the world soul, the source rather than that which is constituted by it. These true philosophers could rise from the perceptible realities of nature to the invisible, intelligible realities which caused them. Augustine praises their rational demonstrations of the simplicity, immutability, and unchangeable nature of God, and he praises their ability to distinguish the creative and derivative from the uncreated and underivative. He just wants more of it, and he wants, most especially, the right mediator to mediate between. Part two, Christ the one true mediator. The culmination of his argument against the daimons then of course builds to the powerful Christological argument about sacrifice that I talked about earlier today and mediation as well. The daimons have an intermediate or mediating position between gods and men, and that makes them neither happy nor wretched, neither mortal nor immortal. They have the attributes of eternity, but they are susceptible to the passions. These daimons, in other words, are not eudaimons. They are not happy. They are in fact miserable, because they cannot really unite us in our mortality to the immortal and eternal good that is God. Augustine says that many of these platonic philosophers have asked whether one can be both mortal and happy and have divided and have been divided on the question. Augustine asks if there were such people. If there were such people. Can you imagine a person who could be both mortal and happy? A person who envies no one, who embodies all the virtues. Can you imagine such a person, Augustine asks? A person who attains happiness in all things. You probably know such a person, or maybe not. Then why wouldn't they become our mediators? Why wouldn't that sort of person mediate between ourselves and the gods? Why wouldn't they, in a sense, be happy angels in disguise? Augustine responds that, quote, the more credible and probable position is that we must look for a mediator who is not only human, but also divine, so that men may be brought from mortal misery to blessed immortality by the intervention of the blessed mortality of this mediator, namely Christ. In other words, the daimons are bad mediators who separate friends, whereas Christ is a mediator who reconciles enemies. Augustine likes putting things in these ways. Bad mediators are separators of friends. Good mediators are reconcilers of enemies. Only Christ can really reconcile enemies. Why do bad mediators separate? Because that's the logic of the fallen angels themselves. The fallen angels who turn away from participation in the one God from the beginning by superbia, by their pride. These angelic natures are susceptible to being able to turn away in some mysterious way. They can turn away from a participated existence in the common good that is God, and so they are deprived of happiness from their beginning. Augustine writes, quote, that that good which can bring happiness is not the good which the many bad mediators can bring, but which only Christ, the one mediator, brings to us. And that one mediator in whom we can participate and by participation reach our felicity is the uncreated word of God by whom all things were created and from whom all things derive their goodness. This is the good mediation we humans need, that God himself, the blessed God, who is the giver of blessedness, in Augustine's phrase, would become, quote, partaker of our nature, and would thus offer us a shortcut to participation in his own nature, the Trinity, in which the angels participate, and so achieve their felicity. We need a mediator who becomes truly one with us, yet who can help purify us, who can heal us, who can free us from sin and defilement. And Augustine confesses that God indeed has done this. Indeed, in his incarnation, Christ has done this. In his cross, Christ has done this. In his resurrection, Christ has done this. What is shown to us is that his divine nature cannot be polluted even by taking upon himself our sin and defilement. And secondly, Augustine says, what Christ shows us is that the demons have no power over us. This is the culmination of his argument about the demons, now called demons, namely that they have been disarmed. Indeed, they are, as Augustine says, puffed up with nothing, like balloons without substance. They are a kind of, quote, windy emptiness in their arrogance. They make claims to power that can only be due to the one true God. And in response to this puffed up power, this counterfeit knowledge they offer to humans, is contrasted something simple, the humility of God revealed in Christ here the power of God is manifested, and the demons make their customary deflationary flight from his presence. Augustine points to the demons who asked Jesus in Mark 1 what business have you with us, Jesus the Nazarene? Have you come to destroy us? And Augustine observes that their question shows their true nature. Their question shows their true nature. What is the true nature of the demons? The fear of losing their own power of existence. Augustine says that God's purpose is not to reveal the demons to us, but, quote, to free us from their tyrannical power, which is really not a power at all to those who are not deceived, to those who participate in the eternal power and wisdom of God. They are but puffed up balloons. Christ allowed himself to be tempted by the prince of the demons only to demonstrate that they were under his control, that they had no power over Christ, and so reveal to us that they have no such power over earthly affairs. Not in the face of Christ in any, at any rate. After the temptation, it was similarly clear that the good and holy angels who ministered to Christ, um, uh, wherever Christ went, He excited the fears of impure spirits, none of whom could resist his commands. This is Augustine's opportunity now to introduce to his Roman readers a biblical account of angels. He sort of eased them into it by taking into account this Roman civic polytheism with their account of these daimons who mediate between God and he wants to say this is like some sort of distorted cult of the angels, which they don't understand, and now he wants to say the importance of how the angels figure in, and so he he wants to tell in books 11 through 12 now the story of the angels. They are, in a sense, the continuation of his argument about mediation. Many people stop with Christ as the one true mediator, that sort of seems like the natural end to it. It's indeed the end of book 10 is the end of the first half of the city of God, and it seems like a sort of punchline. Here's all these daimons, they're bad mediators, and the punchline is Christ the one true mediator. But lo and behold, the thing that I haven't been able to get around is that he goes on talking about mediation, angelic mediation, and this is interesting, 11 and 12, so that's what I want to talk about. From the Apostle Paul, Augustine knows that angels can be classified as angels, as archangels, as thrones, as dominions, as powers, as principalities, as virtues, and that they can come in groups such as choirs and legions. He considers the angelic appearances of named angels, such as Gabriel, who appeared to Mary in Luke 1.19, or Lucifer, appears in Isaiah 14, to Michael, to Michael, Jude 9, as well as unnamed angels, such as the one appearing to Joseph, or the several who appeared at the tomb of Christ, or the seven angels of the apocalypse, Augustine writes about, the angels of the seven churches in Revelation 8. His most extensive discussion of the angels, in fact, occurs in 11 and 12, where he's concerned to understand the creation of the angels as constituting a cosmic spiritual origin for the two cities. So what you associate with the city of God, if you have any sort of preconceived notion of Augustine's city of God, you probably immediately think two cities. And here is Augustine saying, well, if you wanna understand the two cities, you've gotta understand the angelic natures from their origins. When Augustine shifts to this scriptural argument, which initiates in 11, he seeks to show the history of the two cities in terms of their origins, their histories, and their destinies. It should come as no surprise that he finds the origin of the two cities not solely in the human fall, but in a logically prior way in this angelic fall. And so he writes, quote, I've decided that I must first deal with the subject of the holy angels. They form the greater part of the city of God. The angels do and the more blessed part, the happier part, and that they have never been on pilgrimage in a strange land like you and I. He admits, this is 11.9, he admits that while the creation of the angels is not treated explicitly in Genesis, for a variety of textual reasons, he concludes that the angels are created and are referred to by the writer of Genesis and that they're created at that point at which God says, luck sit, let there be light. Augustine writes, another long quote, I don't have water but I'm losing my voice, for when God said, let there be light, and light was created, then if we are right in interpreting this as including the creation of the angels they immediately become partakers of the eternal light. Imagine God creating this creature that immediately becomes a partaker of his light, which is the unchanging wisdom of God, the agent of God's whole creation. And this wisdom we call the only begotten Son of God. Thus the angels illuminated by that light by which they were created themselves become light. And they are called day, Augustine says, by participation in the changeless, the unchangeable light and day, which is the word of God. The word of God's in an unchangeable light and day, through whom they themselves and all other things were made. So if we want to understand the structure of creation, we have to first understand angelic natures. This is the true light which illuminates every man as he comes into the world, and this light, the Word of God, illuminates every pure angel too, so that he is not light in himself, but angels are participated lights. If an angel turns away from God, he turns to darkness, he turns to impurity, and and such are all those who are called impure spirits. They are no longer light in the Lord. They have become in themselves darkness, deprived of participation in the eternal light. For evil is not a positive substance. The loss of good has been given the name of evil, 11.9. Again, I think in all of these quotes where he talks about the angelic nature is he's sort of lacing them with his anti-Manichean sensibilities about the goodness of nature. If evil is not a positive substance, then nature is a positive substance. As he puts it in his confessions, uh, not even the iniquity of sin can uh, wipe out the goodness of human nature. Thank you. Augustine affirms that God is simple, unchangeable, and that the subsistent persons of the Trinity are truly one God, in order to emphasize the way in which God's essence and his existence are identical. It sounds almost Thomistic at points. Whereas creatures have a derived existence, and this includes angelic and human natures, whose attributes can only be perfected through participation in the changeless wisdom of God. God's goodness his in a sense, diffused through these angelic natures. Pure angels derived their light from the immaterial light of the wisdom of God, but, Augustine writes, there were some angels who turned away from this illumination. Um, This presents a difficulty for Augustine. How on earth does this happen, that these creatures are made and that they could possibly turn away? Participation in the eternal happiness of God one would reasonably conclude should be irresistible, right? If you've got a nature that's created and you're created to have this direct perception which makes you truly happy, how could you turn away from that? And so in order to allow for a turning away, Augustine speculates that the angels were created in a a beatitude fitting to their own nature. Not the summit of happiness which God enjoys in himself, of course, that would make angels God if they could enjoy that kind of happiness. So it has to be some sort of slightly lesser participated beatitude than the fullness of God's own happiness. This allows Augustine to go down a path of considering a kind of scalar way of thinking about angelic natures. Augustine speculates um, uh, that, we do not confine the word beatitude within such narrow limits of connotation as to ascribe it only to God, although he is so truly blessed that no greater beatitude is possible. Augustine himself isn't really going to develop a full-fledged celestial hierarchy like, say, uh, Dennis the pseudo Areopagite does, but he does articulate a principle which would immediately admit of a kind of angelic hierarchy, a speculation about beatitude proper to uh, uh, different levels of, of angelic nature, different, different um, uh, levels for human nature as well, I should add. The point for him here is that being created for the endless enjoyment of God the Most High, which is true freedom, does not mean possession of that happiness at the point of creation, and this is what the devil cannot abide. What the devil can't abide is that he doesn't have that perfect happiness that God has in himself alone. That's what the devil wants, to be the source of his own happiness. In Johannine terms, Augustine insists that, quote, the devil sins from the beginning, citing John, 1 John 3.8. But this cannot mean that he sinned from the first moment of his creation. Augustine thinks, That would be a Manichaean claim, to say that the devil sinned from the first moment of creation because, well, if the devil sinned by nature, then there could be no question of sin. There could be no angelic fall. Augustine is sure that God made the devil, but equally sure that he did not make him wicked. Rather, what, quote, sins from the beginning means is that from the beginning of his own creation, the devil did not stand fast in the truth. For that reason, he never enjoyed felicity with the holy angels because he refused to be the subject to his creator. And in his arrogance, supposed that he wielded power as his own private possession and rejoiced in that power. He had refused to accept reality and as his own arrogant pride presumes to counterfeit and unreality," "Unquote, 1113. In this way, Augustine sounds out one of his clarion themes, that the devil's first to fall from the truth. The devil's the first to fall from the truth precisely because he cannot abide a participated existence in the supreme good that is God. The word he almost always uses to, to, to describe this refusal to receive his existence from God is superbia. The pride that refuses a participated existence refuses to partake of a common good and prefers to be higher than the highest good, prefers a self-sustaining, non-dependent existence, constituted out of nothing but the will. As everyone knows, Augustine has set himself the arduous task in the city of God to convince the proud of the excellence of humility And here Augustine brings his readers to the cosmic mystery of why pride stands at the self-defeating origin of a potency for division, darkness, sin, and death. One of the surprising upshots of this discussion of the devil in book 11 is to make a basic theological claim about the fundamental goodness of nature. And about locating the mysterious origins of sin not in nature, but in choice. As he puts it, evil is contrary to nature. In fact, it can only do harm to nature, and it would not be a fault to withdraw from, from God were it not that it is more natural to adhere to God. It is that fact which makes the withdrawal a fault. That is why the choice of evil is an impressive proof. Sorry, this is a quote. That is why the choice of evil is an impressive proof that the nature is good. City of God eleven seventeen. 17. It's not that nature as such which is fallen in this, uh, it's not that nature such as such is fallen in this account, but acts of the will or evil choices which, quote, make a wrong use of good natures. This harkens back to his earlier use, enjoyment distinctions, and other works such as De Doctrina Christiana. This follows perfectly from the claim that evil is privative, that it has no positive, causative, substantive nature, that it is, as he puts it, merely a name for the privation of the good. Furthermore, he's convinced that just because sin has happened does not mean that the whole universe is full of sin, since by far the greater number of celestial beings preserve the order of their nature, and the evil will that refused to keep to the order of its nature did not, for that reason, escape the laws of God who orders all things well. Rather, Augustine says, God founded a holy city constituted by the holy angels on high, which receives its mode of being by subsisting in God, This is what the angels do, the holy angels. They receive their mode of being by subsisting in God. It's enlightening by beholding it. It's joy from cleaving to him. And this is a model for us. It exists, it sees, it loves. It is strong with God's eternity. It shines with God's truth. It rejoices in God's goodness, and so we should aspire to be like these holy angels. And crucially, Augustine says that these angels who are not on our arduous pilgrimage, but who repose in the happiness of God's eternal rest, it's easy for them, hard for us. But guess what? He says they can help you with ease, without difficulty. That's because the holy angels have a power which is pure and free, precisely because they participate in God's rest, God's eternal Sabbath. And so they may help us with ease, without effort, by the power of God's grace, 1131. Now this leads Augustine to think about, now, these two societies of angels at their origins. Two societies of angels that are contrasted and opposed, and not at all divorced from human affairs, he says. They're very much involved in human affairs. The contrast should be predictable enough. One company enjoys God, the other swells with pride, one burns with holy love, the other smolders with the foul desire of its own exaltation. One enjoys the bright radiance of devotion, the other <laughs> rages in dark shadows of desire. One. Brings merciful assistance in obedience to God, the other seethes with the lust to subdue and to injure at the behest of its own ignorance. I don't mean to suggest that you are. An, yeah, yeah. You have to be careful with your hand gestures and these things. Importantly, Augustine stresses again that both societies are good by nature. You're both good by nature, everybody wins a prize. Both are good by nature, but one is rightly directed by choice while the other is perverted by choice. At the end of book 11, Augustine is thus satisfied to tell his readers, quote, so it seems to me that we have sufficiently examined these two diverse and opposed communities of angels in which we find something like the two beginnings of the two com- communities of mankind. Actually, Bettenson is the translator here and, and something like is in, in the original Latin though one can understand why you want to stress an analogical relationship between human and angelic natures, but Augustine simply states that we find these two angelic natures at the origin of the two human societies as well. He is always flirting, I think, with a causal relationship between angelic natures and human nature. We can talk about that if you want. He nevertheless retains agency for each, the angelic and the human, each in their own order. At the beginning of book 12, Augustine is keen to reassert, and I'm almost done here. Augustine's keen to reassert once again that, quote, there is no absurdity or incongruity in asserting a fellowship between men and angels, so that there is no need to suppose, say, four cities two of angels and two of men. There are only two cities, Augustine says. The difference between them is rooted in their wills and in their desires. Quote, the one sort persisting, I'll switch sides now, the one sort persisting resolutely, oh no, I didn't switch sides, the one sort persisting (laughs) resolutely in that good which is common to all. Good job, you guys are. Um, too. the the one sort persisting resolutely in that good which is common to all, God himself, his eternity, love, and truth, while the others were delighted rather with their own power, bad, Um, as though they themselves were their own good. Now, if Augustine wants to stress the goodness of nature and even our ability to come to an imperfect knowledge of God as he does, Uh, and an imperfect knowledge of good and evil, as he also does, the question of mediation comes back to what may assist us on the path of perfection, on the way to happiness. Remember eudaimonia? Clearly he thinks that it is Christ's mediation which is necessary to heal the blindness of original sin, which so disorders our desires. But the mediation is now more complex by books 11 and 12 than it was in book 10. For he admits of angelic assistance in the hierarchy of earthly affairs of the city of God. In a sense, he asserts a relationship between the angelic hierarchy and, shall we say, the ecclesiastical hierarchy. He admits the mediation of the ecclesia which is ordered to true freedom it is the pilgrim church where we can see a perfect society through the worship that connects the angelic and the human the earthly and the heavenly in the true worship of god through christ augustine has no doubt that the church has its worship has in its worship an actual share of the heavenly city of which the angels have an even greater share. Communion not only with the saints who have been perfected in Christ, but also in communion with holy angels who can assist our perfection. As Eric Peterson once put it, the sacramental acts of the church, all earthly worship by the church, should be understood as participation in the worship that the angels as well offer to God in heaven. There's a link between the earthly and heavenly liturgies and it is, of course, the Eucharistic bond, which elevates, as Peterson says, the church's hymnody far above the hymnody of the nations. Yet there remains for Augustine a certain independence which creatures enjoy. Just as the angels may intervene in worship, and assist us, so may the saints intervene in the elevation of human societies and human politics." My wife works on uh, 17th century Venice, which is, has a special, the city has a special devotion to Saint Mark. We once had cities that were devoted to saints and um, which uh, recognized the cult of the angels Just as demons flee from Christ, Augustine sees the witness of obedience to Christ as good for every political order. Indeed, it is the argument of the entire city of God that Christianity is good for Rome. In fact, what is necessary for there to be any proper recognition of the common good at all is to have, indeed, those who bear witness to the city of God in heaven, including the angels and the saints. Augustine might be the first to commend us though to pray the prayer that Pope Leo XIII recommended and that John Paul II revived the prayer of Saint Michael that we pray. Saint Michael the archangel defend us in battle. Be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, prince of the heavenly hosts, by the power of God, thrust into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls." This, in a sense, I think, is the way in which Augustine both wants to say that humans are good by nature, that we are sinful by choice, but that we have indeed a very great help indeed for coming to the worship of the one true God. Thank you very much faith and reason podcasts new media for the new evangelization from franciscan university of steubenville find more at faithandreason.com